circle of protection. One runs a circle around nothing. The next wrestles it into existence. And the last, casting out rays, is infinite. In the middle, fight. This is the earthly life. Pendulum between the nothing and the everything we swim. In every atom, God is present. Being everywhere and nowhere all at once. This now. Like the strands in our cells and every unfurling fractal, point of snowflake, grain of sand, the whole of deity, every reflection of his face in infinite repeat. What is brightest to my sight is that God is in every divergent gleam. Thank you, Beth. Um, okay, so that is everyone I have on my list, but I don't know if anyone else wants to go. Well, that was perfect timing. Should we finish out with a sarcastic bitchy one for me? Yes! Yes, <laughs> definitely. That's no, like, not like, that's like, that's like this graceful, like luminous poem, and I just have this thing. <laughs> so good. I just like did, I just I just did like a Google for it. This is this is not this is not new shit, but um, I've like anyways. Okay, so it's called it's called Martyr on Wheels. Ooh. The martyr on wheels is a man who only infers what he feels. This is because he feels nothing. The inferences go round in circles. He thinks his silence is his alibi, but it is our testimony. Nothing is as nothing does, and nothing he says or does occupies the wind tunnel. Nothing blows whistling around him. We feel nothing when he talks of how he feels because it is nothing but hot air. This is what propels the martyr on wheels. The martyr on wheels wears a Halloween store English bowler hat and preaches to most everyone he meets. Usually he preaches to the converted. Sometimes he preaches to the saints among us from whom he could learn a lesson. He wears a tie dye and buys crystal dragon claw earrings at the mall. It's all store bought metaphysi metaphysics, but he doesn't mind. He knows his prodigious powers will cleanse the mud of capitalism off his precious trinkets. The martyr on wheels lights a red candle when he is saying goodbye to a lover. He says goodbye by lighting a red candle. The martyr on wheels borrows other people's feelings and he doesn't give them back. This is because he doesn't have any of his own. Remember carefully, the martyr on wheels stands for nothing he hasn't heard on the TV. He is roller disco Wicca, and you don't feel a thing off him that you haven't projected there. Nothing, nowhere. Hooray. <laughs> That's my bitchy <laughs> Yay, and then yay. Well done. The Martin <laughs> on Wheels. Okay, I'm sorry, you guys, for sleeping. I was napping. Sorry. Oh, yeah, Aaron. 
can can I go so I can plug? Oh um, my God! Oh, Bart! Bart! Yes, Bart! 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 Plug some stuff. Can I go? So I can plug the friend. Is this okay with Andy's doing hosting, man? I just sat no, around. No, go for it. Go right. for it. Um, I'm not gonna say yeah. no. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Sorry. Um. Yeah. So I just wanna. Yeah. Plug the fringe. The. The um. The spooky slam starting tomorrow. And um, there's a lot of workshops that we organised. Um, on Saturday, a guy called Charles Lang from Glasgow um, is is reading his debate pamphlet, which is really good. It's a bit like um, Tom, Le Tom Leonard. It's called um, yeah. A-OK. -okay. I know someone said A-OK. -okay. Okay. No, someone said Nay Bother yesterday okay. earlier. And like, there's a line in it where it's like, um, he goes to like, you know, there's a poem where he goes to like a job interview. And it's all in English. And then just at the very end, they're like, do you understand? And he replies, A-okay, no bother. <laughs> that's it. But um, it's mostly, yeah, he's a Scottish Charlie poet. Um, and he has a lot of workshops and stuff. I, um, I'm i going to run a workshop, I think, even though I said today to Aaron that I'm not going to run a workshop. And um, just because I've had this idea for a while, like, um, about, well, it's essays, but it's also... um. Yeah, a workshop. But like, basically, I got really into this thing called rhythm analysis, which is a theory by um, Henri Lefebvre, and um, who's a French philosopher, more well known for like ideas of like social space and um, like objects and stuff. But like, basically, it's the idea that all the world is a rhythm. Um, so everything has a rhythm. Like, there's like day and night. Um, you know, like a tree has a rhythm. Any object has a rhythm. And like it doesn't mean like rhythm as in poetry or music or dancing, you know, all those kind of things or like scientific rhythm or anything. Like it's more of a general com concept. Anything with rhythm, something that has repetition, but like every repetition is different. So, um, like for me, I've always thought of like poets. Like we don't, not only do we write with rhythm, but we're rhythm analysis this ourselves because we um. We watch the world around us. We watch rhythm. We watch what's going on. So, like, like in James Penny, he needs he's poem digging. You know, he's watching his dad dig out the window, and then suddenly he comes up 20 years away, and it's like between potato drills, and it's that whole kind of like manual work, the whole history of manual work coming back through or whatever. But um, so yeah, I'm gonna teach instead of so I'm gonna teach rhythm like that in in, in writing. You know how you engage with writing. We're gonna do a lot of like watching um YouTube videos of like time lapses and stuff like that, and like city rhythms and stuff, so you can write. Um, and then I'm gonna learn teach you how to perform as well, with like um how to how to put rhythm into performance. Um, I feel like you're you're doing your workshop kind of almost now. I know, I know, I realize. Okay, this is a poem I wrote called Rhythm Analysis. So <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm gonna stick to the poetry now. Sorry. Um. The tip of a nose, whirling eyelashes, and a responsive tongue. The you that is you, not a reflection, flutters like a pigeon, flapping from a gutter. As morning light drifts into your brain through your eyes, and you look up where crows shit off telephone wires, watching and watching you. And you can hear water, always water, rings like silence below car roars and footsteps, as petrol burns inside melt melted metal. Leaks like spit or sweat into the atmosphere, dribbles onto tarmac that rubs against rubber tires as rows and wheels are remade and reshaped, plugs and levers 
the great hand of mechanical time turning over and over. Every route, every day becomes a time lapse of motions. Your heart stops and starts like a bus pulling over. Your mind switches in and out of autopilot. A single oar steering its way through the current, which changes in ways we can't predict. Waves break and reform. Teeny particles of sand and salt. Residue of rocks and crustaceans swirling. The tide goes in and out. Days unpeel into sunsets, hang on the skyline like potato skins on fresh bin bags. You look at mountains and cliffs, and you know that they, like you, are dying, but also that they, like you, are alive. Unlike other things that are less predetermined and harder to measure, like the movement of knowledge and ideas, the spread of undegradable waste and car fumes, the poisonous gases up here at night, the orange city becomes an urban substitute for the sea. The constant exhale morphs the sky. The city never stops, and neither do you. Even at night, you watch yourself, eyes closed. Your brain tries to make sense of all of this. Helps you find your place. The poet, the human, the rhythm analysis. The one who feels the beat, watches the flow. Wake up, rhythm analysis. Reclaim yourself as the watcher. Reclaim watching as rhythm. Reclaim rhythm as communication. Reclaim communication as living. Lungs lifting. Minds printing. Heart fleeting. Arms swinging. That was my rhythm analysis poem. Um, I was going to do three poems, but I'll probably just do two now. Um, what I'll do is... And I had to back out of that Zoom. Uh, that's the end of Choose Poetry, Choose Life. And here we go. Is that LaToya, the Sheriff of Truth? Yeah. Yeah! Really funny. I like, tried to call like three times. I kept answering, I but it wasn't, it was weird. I was like going mutiny radio and then it wasn't any sound. And then I was like, what's yeah. going on? But it's all good. You're here now. So I was just like, Maybe if I give it two minutes, maybe something would happen. And it worked. God bless it. It worked. Yay. Yay, you're here. So, you made it. That I makes me it. happy. I to make it in the time of COVID. Hell yeah. So um, here we are on Some Call Me Tim slash AltaCast. <laughs> I've got LaToya, the Sheriff of Truth, chilling. She's going to give us the update. Been an exciting week. Week. Um, with our, with the, with, this is, this is very funny. More people in the White House are infected with COVID than the entire island of Taiwan. Interesting fact. Isn't that something? something? Yeah, I think it's pretty amazing. I think it's pretty amazing that, uh, isn't it funny that the mask deniers that were inside the White House all have it now? That's so, it's like... The irony is perfect. I've been, I've been, I've been posting. The poetic justice is great. Yeah. Um, it'll be even greater. Well, I, I shouldn't say that on the air. Um, anyway, <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, I, it was funny. Like when uh, 45, you know, got COVID, I was like, how do you catch a hoax? Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that he's been... Obviously, he's on some kind of steroids or something because the last 24 oh, hours he's been tweeting. Out. He's been off the chain with he's the tweets. Void, void rage. 
Losing his GD mind, baby. I mean, it seems, it almost seems like this is an effort for it to be more, um, like, it might help him get reelected because he did get it or something. I don't know. It all seems like a ploy and a game right now. And I can't believe that we're a month away. We were a month away from choosing another president. And hopefully it is another president and not the same president. Because I can't believe how stupid people are. (laughs) Here's two things. So I I was with you on what you just said about the sympathy vote. Uh, I was saying that on Friday. Now, boy, has a lot changed since Friday. Sure, sure. Um, the fact of the matter is, like, I don't think... Uh-oh. I don't think that sympathy vote is going to work at this point mm. just because of the fact that we know he is patient zero. We know now, ever since... Can you hear me still? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, Okay, I was making sure. I, I'm walking with these ear things, so I apologize, podcast world. No, you're um, doing great. But so basically, so we know that okay, 1 a.m. Thursday, Friday morning, we found out he tested positive for AIDS. I mean, COVID. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> COVID, the new AIDS. Uh, and so then, okay, everyone was freaking out, blah, blah, blah. So that's when I'm like, oh, shit, sympathy vote. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people on the left were thinking, this, our conspiracy theory started to come around, like, wait a minute, why is he all of a sudden getting COVID when it's less than a month away of the election? This motherfucker's trying to get sympathy vote. All right, so that was Friday. Come Saturday, Sunday... This dude's popped, pumped up on roids and other experimental drugs and wants to take a ride around the hospital waving to his cult followers because he got bored. And then come Sunday night, he wants to leave because he's bored. <laughs> uh, and then we come to find out that Hope Hicks had, was positive during like, the debate. And then, you know, all this stuff started to come out. So basically what I'm trying to say is I think that sympathy vote is out the window. But one thing we have to make sure, ladies and gentlemen, the voter suppression is on. Yes. It doesn't matter what state you're in. These Republicans are trying their damnedest to stop us to purge the vote. Because right now where he has the polls are, and again, I fucking hate polls, but let's just com- compare this to 2016, where Hillary was up five points around this time. And so, you know, the Democrats were like, oh, yeah, yeah, Hillary's got this, blah, blah, blah. She doesn't need to go to Michigan or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. She's got this. Well, they were wrong about that. But where Biden is standing right now is anywhere between a, uh, a difference in margin, 16 points to 14 points ahead of Trump. Yeah. Wow. He's losing. He lost seniors. He's losing seniors. Wow. 55 and above. Wow. He's losing. He's, he's, he's lost white women. Good job, white ladies. Finally. Um, of course, he doesn't have the black vote. 
Now, which is funny, his vote is up more for black men uh, in contrast to last year or his last election, which I don't know what's wrong with you Negroes who are voting for him. I guess you like being on a plantation. These must be the sellout Negroes that are like your Ben Carson's or your Clarence Thomas's. So we don't, they're not invited to the barbecue. Right. 25%, 25% of the Latin vote, that's Trump I'm still talking about. Asian vote, he barely has any of that. Yeah, I hope, I I mean, uh, because what's he done for them? Yeah, but well, here's the thing. White college educated males, he's up. Or excuse me, he's down. Um, the only people that he's up on, and we're not surprised, ladies and colored people, un, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, non-college white males. Wow, yeah, the Proud Boys. The, I so mean, I think that he's um, positively trending among white supremacists that still live in our country, yeah. unfettered by any of the laws. He's unable to denounce white supremacy. If you are unable to stand in front of the American public and denounce the thing that we are talking about right now with an entire movement, if you are unable to acknowledge that with your words, then you are disrespecting the movement because you're not even acknowledging it and not acknowledging that it's there and that it's important is is just as much as giving it the finger you you can't he can't continue to ignore what's going on and this this proves it if his numbers are going up with uneducated white males they are the fucking white supremacists that's who they are all these black people taking our jobs and we 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 deserve you know we're entitled because we're the white american we got manifest destinies motherfucker I can't, I I can't, I just, it seems, it seems so obvious what's happening and that the polarization is continuing in our country that we're having, we are polarizing the sides and I really think that it's going to be scary come next month, whether, if he loses, if, if, if 45 loses, there's going to be some crazy stuff happening. But if he wins and we do anything, then it's going to be crazy too. It's like, it seems like we're, there's no way out of this. We're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. There's really no way to avoid violence. I I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to incite any violence. I don't want anyone to get violent. That's all they know. That's all they know. They think that they're going to win by being violent. The only they're, they're, they think they have they have a revolution coming. Yeah. And the funny thing is they think that the revolution's gonna be on their side. The revolution's well, against them. Exactly. <laughs> and if they don't I'm, see you know it I mean? they don't because they're blinded by their whiteness and their privilege. Yeah. And here's the fun fact. We're talking about the non college educated white males mm. when in contrast they're so stupid it's mostly you know what's holding them down corporations who are mostly the ceos and the presidents of these uh corporations who are shipping their jobs away it ain't the mexicans it ain't the blacks it ain't the puerto ricans it ain't the asians oh let me guess it's the white college educated wealthy male it's the one percent baby it's the one it's the one percent it's a huge wealth grab and if we're blind to all of this, I'm just really scared. It's a month away. 
Have you seen, um, you probably haven't seen because you're, you're still staying super safe uh, where you are, sheltering and whatnot. Um, there's, I walk by it every day in the Civic Center. There's a, the voting is open now. It opened yesterday, voting for all. You can vote right now, San Francisco. You can go oh, cool. right in front of Civic Center. It's absolutely safe. There, um, there are masked people. They have a thing, no masks beyond this point. There's, they set up a huge tent. There's tons of social distancing between all the booths. You can go vote right now. Um, I'm gonna, I mean, I'm gonna vote super soon. I'm definitely gonna do it before before the day itself. But oh, everything is set up in the center of the city for us. Oh, and also, too, other places that you can vote at, um, and I would suggest people in the podcast world, check out that NBA is, um, they're using their sports arenas as poll stations. Here in San Francisco, uh, the Chase Arena uh, is a polling center. So whatever state that you uh, are in or whatever city, make sure you find out if you're, uh, whatever sports team or arena that you have in your city, make See if they have a polling station, mm. because I know most of the uh, places where the NBA plays, they will they are setting up polling stations. So that's, that's great. Good. That's the way to give information vote. out. The and answer. You have to vote. If you are hearing this podcast and you're not a voter, that's insane. Because <laughs> why would you? Oh, wow. That's what I have to say to you. I beep at you. I I, I high pitch squeal at you if you're not going to vote this year. Your vote. Your vote matters. Oh, I think we lost her. We lost her. She'll call back. But your vote matters, and it really is important uh, for you to vote during this time. Oh, there she is again. And she's back. I lost you. It's a, hey, it's all good. Sorry, I was just sorry, giving the little the little PSA that if there's any if there's ever a year to vote, this is the year. And also, it's not just for the presidency, but all everything that happens locally in San Francisco. That's really where we can affect some changes is in the local level. So even if crazy things continue happening with our government as a large, larger entity, at least where we are here in San Francisco, I think that for the most part, they have our best interests at heart. Does London Breed have our best interests at heart? I, I think so. Although I keep seeing all this like oh, grants for artists and all this stuff, and I'm like, what about me? <laughs> what about Mutiny Radio? Come on, London. London Breed. And I'm, I, I'm not going to talk shit about her anymore because I'm trying to get on a good basis with my friends. Mm. My friends friends with her, and I would like to socialize and talk to her. So, but... <laughs> I think she's on the right spot. Um, here's the thing about mayor, being a mayor of a, of a progressive city like this. Yeah. You're going to have to play politics. Of course, she's friends with Nancy Pelosi, who, you know, I'm not a fan of. Vote her out, by the way. I didn't know Skeletor had a said, sister. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, with that, I think with, all of, with the uh, pandemic, She's getting a lot of things done, um, and like these grants and what have you, that's helping a lot. Now, what we need, there's a ton of work that we're going to need here in the city. Yeah. Um, I know there's the Proposition uh, 21, that's for the housing. Um, and I think there's also Proposition, is it 21, 22? I've been trying to school myself on the different propositions. Um, about Lyft drivers and Uber drivers for them to be employees, and that way they can get benefits. Mm. Uh, I think that's Proposition 22. 
but uh, Proposition 21 is for uh, for renters to have rent control oh, yeah. um, and to basically basically to help freeze rent for those renters. It's it's. Uh, I don't understand how this is all happening in the city. I heard that rents are going down. Obviously, none of my rents are going down. They're all staying the same. But uh, I'm wondering, they've been building a billion places. I still see all of the cranes and all of the buildings. Who is moving here? Where Where are the people moving from place to place? Like, do people actually have money to move into a new place right now? How is that? I just... Show me the money. I, well, I wish there was some more transparency. Well, what's going on, well, what's going on is now that since the pandemic, we're in our oh, seventh month. Yay! Seven months of the shit. Um, I, I was watching on a local TV here that the majority of people that are living in the city are moving to like the East Bay, uh. where it's cheaper because there's no need to go into the office. Yeah, exactly. Because the office is not home. Right, everything, and I mean, the way everybody's done business has changed. People have slowed down. I just, it makes me, it makes me confused about the way the world works. I, and I just, I feel so <laughs> non-essential. Like, well, everything I did has no purpose or meaning, and I still can't get my unemployment. Yay, I'm valueless in a valueless society. I'm, I mean, I have value in that I'm not morally bankrupt, but I feel like my monetary value and what I'm worth to the system is in the toilet. Man, I need to get, I need to get that, I need to get that unemployment money, that back pay. I need it so badly to keep the station going. Like, I just don't even, I keep praying, just think good thoughts because. I can't even get through to them on the phone anymore. Um, they just keep hanging up on me. I've been calling them like multiple times a day now, and it just keeps—they keep hanging up. And I'm like, "Oh dear Lord, let this all work out." Okay. So uh, it, it'll work out. It'll work out. I—I um, I mean, I just have to stay positive. It's gonna be fine. What, what's gonna happen? Like, and if if something does happen, let's say that, let's say that I do lose Mutiny Radio. Eh, whatever. I've been doing it for many years. It's fine. If I have to move into some other something, okay, there's a new, so that means there's a new adventure that lies beyond. You know, if, I, if I'm if i not locked in here, maybe I can go hang out in the woods with Wania. Wania at the bow. Check her out. If anything happens to that station, we're going to start an OnlyFans page. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll start an OnlyFans so page. page. I'll take all the old microphones that don't work anymore and I'll stick them up my twat for money. How about that? Is that sexy? Does that work? What if I... Can you hear my... If I stick a microphone in my twat and it's hooked up, can you hear my heartbeat through the through the, through the the microphone? These are These are important questions. If I do a kegel and I squeeze the microphone, will you be able to hear it? You won't have to show your face. Oh, I don't. I'm fine with showing my face. Did you not? Have you not? I have no shame, uh, uh, Sheriff of Truth. I have no. I don't. I don't care. I'll stick a. I'll, I don't care. I'm no shame. I've never had shame. It's one of the reasons why I do stand up. Is I. I honestly, when I do feel those feelings of shame, 
I just drink as much as I can so that I don't remember those feelings of shame. <laughs> I just will block it out and let it just wash away all the all the shame and regret. I really don't have I really don't have a lot of shame and regret. Um, so it's fine. It's okay. No, I, not worried. You know, I have, 2020 hasn't given me a chance to have shame or regret this year, <laughs> so I'm okay. You know, the only actually I take that back. So you know. I hate to be the Debbie Downer, but, you know, 2020, we know is garbage uh, because of everything going on. But I I want to also dedicate this podcast to a close friend of mine who I grew up with. Um, she died on Saturday. Oh, no. Sunday morning. I'm so sorry. she's only 41. And, um, what? What? I won't be able to. Yeah. 41? Um, she, she has to. 41, yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, in the time of COVID, I won't be able to say goodbye to my friend, just like I didn't get to say goodbye to my grandmother. So I just wanted to also dedicate this podcast to her. And seeing as, like, as we're talking about politics and, you know, even, you know, because politics right now is life or death. Yeah, it is. It really, truly is. so it just... There's perspective that I'm trying to get right now, uh, and you know, I I told myself last week that I threw my morals and ethics out the window, and I know I shouldn't wish ill on people or you know any deadly thoughts, but I'm just tired of good people dying and let, and having the bad ones stick around. Agreed. And we're all suffering. Yeah. During yeah. this time. Absolutely. I mean, I think that. Or we're, di- or we're dying a slow death. Every everyone is everyone is feeling the stress. Everyone is feeling the suffering, and yet we still have no adequate leadership to, like, where is the JFK? Where is, where is the leadership that can stand up and say, "Hey, I know there's a lot of fear." And I know this is, we're in a scary time, but everything's going to be okay because of blah, 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 or, or everything's not going to be okay and everything's changing, but still acknowledging the issues that are happening as opposed to not acknowledging or taking any responsibility for any of it. And this is the time, I mean especially as role models, we've got to teach children that it's okay to make mistakes. You just have to own up to it. And once, and once you say, geez, I made a mistake, what's somebody going to say? Well, hey, maybe together we can fix it. But until you take responsibility for what happened, you can, and you can't shift the blame. That's the other thing. It isn't about, well, it wasn't me. It was just over here. I'm not a crook. It's not me. It's this. Taking responsibility <laughs> and saying, Here's what happened. Here's what's happening. Here's what's happened in the past. I'm acknowledging it. And only together can we move forward. And we just don't have 
our our president right now is completely unable to accept any responsibility for anything. He can't even accept responsibility. He even lies about how much he weighs. He lies about how healthy he is. He can't even take responsibility for, he has fake hair. He has a fucking wig on his head. It's not real. If you can't be honest about your own hairline, how can you be honest about anything? And that he cannot take responsibility for any of his own actions or the actions of what have happened to their... The reason that the BLM movement continues to rise up and be scary and there's all of these things happening is that nobody has taken responsibility because police are still able to murder a certain population because of the color of their skin. And until we stand up and say and acknowledge it, we can't, we can't pass it off. We've got to acknowledge it to be able to move on. And it's going to be this huge cyst that is boiling under the skin of America. And it's going to keep rupturing and having issues. And then, you know, you pour a little alcohol on it and it chills out for a minute. But that sore is still there and it continues to fester until you debride it and cut it out and get a doctor and go, look, we have a fucking problem and we need to address it. And then once you clean it up and dress and it's going to be painful it's going to be fucking hard to clean out that wound and you know what sometimes you got to pour soap on it and you got to scrub it out and that's going to suck for a minute it is it's going to hurt america but we cannot move together as a group without acknowledging that we have a huge festering boil under our skin good metaphor huh i'm i'm that's a great metaphor and that, and you also brought a great segue into what you were just talking about. Um, I hate to break it to you, podcast world. We have some breaking news, uh, and it's not good. Let's see. And Betty, Van, Eddie Van Halen died. Mm-hmm. That happened too. Eddie, uh, Eddie yeah, Van Halen died I, yesterday I, at 65. I, I running, I, he I died at 65. No, we do not talk about that. seconds who for eight minutes and 43 seconds lets and extinguished somebody's life is now out of jail that's what you're saying yes that's exactly what i'm saying no justice no peace no justice no peace so i i was trying to finish the story on the fact of um because supposedly he it was not a cash bond Mm. Um, let's see. There's a story. Okay. Was he so was he bonded out by the city or by the police force? Huh. I think so. So <sighs> this is what it says. Um, this is CNN. Uh, officer charged with uh, fatally uh, kneeling on George Floyd's neck posted bond at one million dollar bail. 
uh, the ex-police uh, officer is facing murder charges, and he puts a bond on $1 million bail court record. He can, I can confirm that he's no longer in custody. Um, he was released just after 11 a.m. at the Hennepin County. Uh, his next court date is set for March. This motherfucker is... Oh, hell no. So his next court date is set for March, according to the appearance. It's not clear who paid the bond or who the bond company or how much the Minnesota law allows to pay the maximum. Mm. But the police, the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association, which maintains a legal defense fund, did not put the money up. The Police Officers Federation of uh, Minneapolis did not immediately respond. Uh-oh. That's a sign. Chauvin faces counts of second-degree murder and the third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter of Floyd in May 25th killing. Um, blah, blah, blah. In August, Chauvin asked the judge to remit the charges, saying there is no probable cause to support them. <laughs> Prosecutors contend that Floyd's killing was so cruel that if Chauvin and the other officers are convicted, they want to take their citizens in their recommended guidelines to net. One, uh, aggravating circumstances that Floyd was in handcuffs when the officers pinned him to the ground and Chauvin knelt on his knees. Uh, all four officers were fired, of course. Um, and the other three ex-policemen, uh, Alexander Kuhn, uh, Thomas Seaman Lane, uh, and Tao Tao, are charged with aiding and abandoning second-degree murder and aiding and abandoning a second-degree manslaughter. So what we, this is the end of the article. So what... It sounds like so the police officers federation of Minneapolis did not immediately respond. Right. So they probably put up the that money. That does something. Yeah, that does say something. This motherfucker, all this burden and all this protest and worldwide, this guy gets bailed, and we saw him. Yeah, we all saw. We all saw a murder. We all saw. We all saw eight minutes and 43 seconds of, um, there, there were many opportunities for him to get up. I mean, and that's the thing. You can restrain someone without knocking the life out of them. You can do that. I mean, if there's someone needs to be restrained, but I mean, when a person is crying and begging for their life and you are not acknowledging that whatsoever, it's a human rights violation and that they're calling it second degree is I find incredibly offensive, but just because he's hiding behind a oh, badge, you know but when you hide behind a badge, it makes it second yep. degree. So anytime you kill anybody, they still are like, well, you know, because you're a police officer, you're allowed to murder people. Is that what we're doing now? If you, if you're a coward that hides behind a no. badge, you get to murder people. Cowards. You know, because you know what's not cowardly? Having a conversation with somebody to talk them down because they're fucking people and recognizing that they have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to pursue and not, you know, just systematically murdering them because of the fear that you have because you're not able to control them with your voice, you coward. Cowards. I'm. How the fuck does he get bonds? A million dollars. Especially. Especially with all the destruction. Mm-hmm. Do they want people? See, I would be out there mad right now. I would be out there tearing some shit up. You know why? Because this is a slap in the face. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, letting him out of jail says that his life has a lot of value. 
and that people value him and they want him in the community. They want him so badly in the community that they paid a million dollars to get him out, to put him back with his, you know, who can never go back to his family, you know, who could never get out because he's dead. Well, a lot of people, not Mr. Not just Mr. Floyd, but um, there's a lot of people who have been systematically I mean, murdered by. I mean, last week we had Breonna Taylor's case <sighs> by that team, and now this week. And now this week, every week, every and it is a slap in the face to the movement. And again, until until on a large scale, and I wish that Biden would stand up and say it too. I wish that he would stand up and yeah. say, "Hey, you know what?" I do want, I am standing for change and we do, and there is a huge problem with the system and the way that our entire country has been formed. I, oh, I've been getting the worst memes from my father. Oh, they're so bad. The only one I, I was, I agreed with, which was so confusing because I've been saying it too, is there was a picture of a bunch of um, questionably housed people in San Francisco and it said, they don't have any masks. They don't have any social distance. How come all of the homeless people aren't dead yet? And I was like, are you saying that you want the homeless people to die? And this meme, and I know what he was saying, which is kind of the same thing I've been saying, is what, does heroin, heroin protect you from COVID? Um, but there's all of these people who have are supposedly the most vulnerable who haven't caught it, and then you have the entire White House who would supposedly be like the most impregnable force, and they all have it, you know? So it's like, what what's going on? Anyway, my dad sent me some terrible memes this week. I just, you know, I, uh, yeah, and because and I, I talked I to some. I did a show on Sunday, and I had my fuck Trump jacket on, and it was um down in Pacifica, and there was a guy who came up to me after my set, and he goes, "Don't tell anybody I'm a Trump supporter," and I was like, "Okay." Why are you saying this to me? And he talked to me about feminism for a while, and it was really interesting to talk to this guy who was a little bit over 60. Two of the guys actually came up to me after my set and wanted to talk to me about feminism, and I was like, wow, this is kind of a step in the right direction, you know? But um, it's it's interesting how once you get out of San Francisco proper and just go as far as Pacifica and you find out how many Trump supporters there are. Like... um. I have some buddies that live in Hollister and they were saying that they are in the minority that they, and I was like in California and they're like, yeah, just past Santa Cruz. Um, it all goes back to pe- people with money want to keep their money. And so oftentimes they stay Republican because they think that they think that it's fiscally conservative and that their, their needs will somehow be met. But, I don't know. I think the social needs right now are more important than any fiscal needs that we can possibly have. Because obviously we figured out the fiscal needs can be taken care of. Everyone got free money in California except for me. But with the EDD thing, like everyone's got an unemployment. Everyone everyone got an extra 600 bucks a week. A lot of people are getting an extra 300 a week. I'm still not, but it's because I'm too poor to get money. I don't know. I'm working it out, unemployment. But please, for the love of God, help me. But um, it's... I. I I don't, I don't know what's going to... We, first, we've realized that financially, we can just print money, I guess. We just give everybody money. I don't know. I don't know how to solve anything, but I do think that we have to work together and all be people and recognize the value of... Is the value truly that we are people or is there something different afoot and are we are we meaningless to, to our 
to our government, to our administration? Do do they really care about us? Are are we really important, or are we just, no. you know, little no, numbers? They don't care. They don't care. It, it it just sucks right now that we have to rely on them at this time. Yeah. And here's the thing, you know, we as Americans pay into the government is like our little piggy bank, yeah. technically, you know, for moments like this. And the fact that, you know, now we have, you know, President Humphrey Fuck, <laughs> doesn't want to, he, he just threw the stimulus package away until after the election, he said. He wants to see, you know, well, basically, ladies and gentlemen, supposedly we're supposed to get another stimulus uh, in the, the in the few coming weeks of this month, but since uh, our presidents are roided out and are heavily medicated, he decided to throw that out the window and wait for the election because he thinks he's going to win. So he's dangling people's livelihood. Like people are losing their homes, their apartments, their cars, yeah, everything, jobs. Hopefully, I don't so lose Airlines is going to lay off another thirty-six thousand, I believe. Mm. People. There's a lot of people that are still unemployed, and we're coming up on holiday season. Yeah, yeah, I you know. know. And then the fact that you know, and that's stimulus. When people say, you know, I don't need handout. You know, I'm a man. I work for mine. That's not a handout, you dummy. Yeah, it's not. You a pay into that. That is your money. Don't people need to throw away these talking points? Like, I don't need a handout. No one's handing you out if you're working. Right. If you're paying your taxes. Right. And the fact that, you know, we do rely on the government in moments in crises like this when it's like, hey, it's time for that money now that we pay into. Why aren't you giving it to us? Right. Yeah. It's, I, and it's also funny because, you know, I, I, took, uh, I took government in high school. I think we all did. But, yeah. I, and I have, I have an idea of how, the about how the the government works as a system but then does our president does anyone in his cabinet have any do we, i mean what is happening and who are who who are our leaders and who understands the constitution where are the constitutional lawyers on this one i miss barack so much i wish he could run again why can't he run again are you not allowed to run again later well, like if you were already the president you can't run again for president no, because you're I know, but but I know in a row, but why can't they come back? Why can't we be like, we miss you, we, we miss you, Barack, please come save us, please. Um, I don't, I don't want to go back to that because that's the status quo. Now, yeah, what too. I do miss of that administration was sanity. Right. But here's the thing, you know, they, they, we were dealing with highly skilled, highly intelligent people. So the way they lied to us sounded like shit and roses, you know. Yeah. The, you know, the way they dressed things up. And, you know, it was a sexy bunch in the, in the administration, you know. Yeah. And some leaded us to be that they were on the progressive side when a lot of them were not. You know, so that's why I don't want to go back to that. I want to completely change, you know, and I don't want just the status quo. I want sanity back first. That's number one, because you can't do business and get shit done with insanity. So sanity 
Any functioning adult, just any functioning adult, any of them, one, I just, I can't, someone who has, I really, at least, you know, Kamala has, she's lived in California, she has the right idea, at least when I say the right ideas, I say she shares a lot of the same ideas I do, so I'm a hundred percent. But then I've been reading, I see, I see the memes that come out, especially the things my dad says. And she was not supporting Biden before, before she was uh, chosen as the running mate. And so there's been some flip-flopping with her, but I don't, I don't care. And I don't understand why all, it's because the, the Republican, a lot of them have this white supremacist thing. Why do we care? What, she, she identifies as a African-American, and I'm getting all these memes about her dad's Jamaican and her mom is uh, is Indian. Indian. So how is she, how possibly can she be African-American? And I'm like, what do you want her to call herself? She can she call more. herself black? Can't she just, what do you want? And it's white people that are. Uh, See, that's that stupid, that's that stupid white wing, uh, white wing, yeah. right wing. <laughs> If so, she wants to identify so, as a cat, way, I don't black. care. If she, she... And plus, plus, her parents. Here's the thing. When you're born in a state, that means you're an American, right? Yeah, yeah. Even if your parents are foreign, right? Sure. This is civics 101. Right. People are so, people are throwing their civics books. And by the way, civics, a lot of people don't take civics anymore. Mm. That's why you have a bunch of dummies running around. <laughs> but with, the fact of the matter, her dad's Jamaican. He's black. Most Jamaicans are black, right? Yeah. I believe at least, like, I'm going to say, like, 85%. Okay. Her mom is Indian. Some of them look like niggas, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so the fact that her parents are... They're trying to pull the same Barack thing. Right. But with the fact well, that, well, what makes her African-American... Um, she was born in Oakland. Well, also, it's like, pick the terminology and stick and with it. Everybody said woman. it's, everyone said it's African-American, whatever. You could call it black American, you can call it African-American. And, and technically, if her father is from Jamaica, he might have been, he might have originally come from Africa. I, it's, it's semantics. Exactly. And it's just so funny Thank because you. when Thank the... You. When the right side, when the side on the right, they want to use semantics. They're all fine about it. But then they make fun of the left side for being like, oh, your pronouns and all your stuff. And I'm like, so then you bring up the semantics too. So it's only, you know, it's they can only use it when it benefits them. It's like, ugh. I mean, that's, I guess that's well, they're not how, even getting it right. Yeah. They're not even getting it right. It, it's, this is just like basic fifth grade civics. Like, and then what's funny is like I'm on like some of these, uh, like, YouTube political YouTube channels, and you you even have some African Americans saying that well she's not really black she wasn't born here, oh she's not African American. I'm like, are you kidding me? Did you really just read that propaganda bullshit and you fall for it? Because now there you have certain black people who are starting to sound like a little bit of a white supremacy in their coffee. Like saying, like, you know, talking about, like, black foreigners. You know, well, they're not really, you know, people say African-Americans, which I don't like to call myself because I'm black. 
uh, I'm from the diaspora. I don't like to, I don't like to put, state out my my uh, my nationhood. Right, right. But you have Black Americans saying that, you know, well, Jamaicans, you know, they're a different kind of black. What? I mean, what? Hello, we all were on the same ship. They got dropped off before us. How many times do you have to have this conversation? Right, right. God damn it. <laughs> Well, and you've got so many long comedians that say that, and I'm just like, you are, you are co-signing your slave masters' buffoonery. And this this uh, upcoming Monday is uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. Don't get it twisted; it's not Columbus Day. Don't support that uh, colonizer bullshit. It's Indigenous Peoples Day, and hey, celebrate where we all came from, you know, and, and said, can we celebrate that we stole some people's stuff? That's the thing is before it was like a celebration of, yeah, we stole everybody's stuff. And now it's like, it almost should be an apologetic day. Like, Hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. We took all your shit, bro. <laughs> like, and then gave you diseased blankets and, uh, and, and stole your land and hobbled people. That was one of the worst things that Columbus did, uh, in Haiti, and in some of the islands, so that people wouldn't escape, he oh. hobbled them. He'd put a piece of wood between their legs and break break one of their ankles so that there was no way that they could ever run away because they couldn't barely stand. And then he'd make them, you know, work until they died. And that was a fun way to deal with slavery back then because they were like, well, huh, we don't have to pay them. It's cheaper to do this just to enslave them till they die. Because <laughs> they're not people, they're slaves. What would it do? And it's like, you know what? They had lives and families before you showed up, you colonizing piece of dog shit. But, hey, I wouldn't be here without those, you know, without that. So, I, I don't know. I got it. So, that all goes back to reparations. So, on Indigenous Peoples Day, maybe study uh, maybe try an ancestral skill maybe um maybe go forage some food wherever you live um whether you be in a in a city setting i'm gonna make a squash and then give, i'm gonna make a squash and give white people a blanket of smallpox there we go that's my reparation yeah a blanket of COVID. I'm going to give him a blanket of COVID. But um, I'm going to definitely encourage you. I encourage you to, or everyone out there to, um, you know, be connected with the world around you and know that um, the people who were living on this land far before us were connected in the, to the land in a really beautiful and meaningful way rather than just sort of raping it like we do now. So go out wherever you are and maybe, you know, forage some. Yeah, that's some of those my people. Yes. I mean, I wish I had anything in me except, you know, it'd be it'd be it'd be a lot more fun if I had some indigenous people stuff in me. But I don't. I'm white as to come. If they did a 23 in me, it'd just come back as a as a cotton ball, just well, nice and fluffy and white. I That's all they give me back. As, I can say as um, one being part of the Cherokee Nation. Um, you do get fired up, you know. You do have a fiery presence. Like my great grandmother, who was from Blonde Cherokee, she didn't play. She didn't trust the white man. Of course not. She, she always, she always, because she, you know, getting pushed off her home and seeing what she saw, you know, she always yeah. carried a rifle. She, you know, and when she was like in her late nineties, early hundred, yes, I said early hundred. She, uh, 
in her money in her wheelchair. Yeah. And she trusts no one, and she didn't trust bank. And they, you know, they found like ten thousand dollars in her. God in bless her. Well, and, you know, how could she, she trust? It's like going back. It's like know. being an abused girlfriend and going back to your boyfriend over and over and over. Soon, you either die or you learn. You either learn or you die. If you have an abusive boyfriend, he ain't gonna change. You know, he's gonna if he if he hits you once, he's gonna hit you again. If you do get mouthy or do whatever he didn't tell you that you did or whatever, and it's the same thing. We cannot trust our government. And if I was a Native American, how could you trust them? They say, hey, we're giving you this. Oop, taking it away. And then they call it Indian giving, which is so terrible because it's you're not, you're misappropriating and, and, and it's a pejorative term twice. It's like we're the ones that are giving and taking away, and yet you stigmatize a group of people by putting their name on it. And it isn't even the right name because they're not even – because Columbus was stupid and he wasn't in India. <laughs> but he called – so that – but if I was a Native American person – how? How would you ever trust the government? How many times does someone have to lie and steal from you until you go, I don't believe you? So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, oh, and by the way, before we go, I got to give a shout out to our state. This is why we are progressive. This is one of the reasons why I love California. There has been a bill. There's a bill. I believe it passed on the study of reparations. Uh, here in California, um, and the study of reparations on how to get it, you know, how do we gather these things. The hate has already started. Now you have, unfortunately, you know, uh, certain Latinos saying, well, what about our reparations? Get your own. (laughs) One at a time. uh, You fight for it. This is our stuff, Okay. The, some of the indigenous people are mad. I'm like, y'all need to talk to those white people that stole it. Hence the $5 Indian. That has nothing to do with us. As And I'm saying that, and I know that, because of the story and what my great-grandmother, you know, what she went through and how that whole shit worked out. And if anything, I do believe the indigenous deserve bids first. I do agree with that. But we as black people in this country, and and I'm also including the islands, the Caribbean, because they deserve reparations to every in Brazil and Latin America. But you gotta get your own. But here in, in the Americas, I'm just gonna say that is process. Start the that process. process. At least I, I'll, I'll take the study, but for my other people of color. Y'all work on your own shit right now. Well, it's it, but Stay it's out of our business. It's it's that that the process is being looked at is a step finally in the right direction. It's saying it's acknowledging. Exactly. That's what I was, that's what I'm talking about. Acknowledging that we fucked up. The first, but we just have to acknowledge yeah, that there's a problem. Reparations should happen, and it should happen for many people because manifest destiny was fucked. And but exactly. that we. And that goes for the native peoples, but but for the people that we kidnapped and brought over here, I remember and still it's burned in my memory the pictures of the slave ships and how they put people heel to toe for a six month journey yeah. and how awful and how people had to be in each other's like feces and they die on the way over and nobody cared and they just threw them overboard exactly. and they weren't even they people. Just 
and then, just throw them in the ocean like garbage. And that was before they even got here and before they were enslaved and beat and raped and yeah. for enforced labor and, you know, their children were taken away from them and sold and families were split up and there's and our, and then our country was built on the backs and the labor of people that we've never acknowledged so it's about fucking time and people people's name that we took like we used to have names right. we didn't come here as Smith and Johnson our our did I identity got tossed to the ocean. Right, exactly. And so with that, you know, the study, because here's the thing, and I have to tell other black people, you guys got to be patient. This reparations thing, we got to find out who we're connected to. Yeah. You know, that's another thing. You know, but it's not just reparations on the plantation. That includes Jim Crow. You know, and, and without, with those documents of like the 1900s, Ugh. And it, uh, all up to the modern age, some of our grandparents didn't, weren't born in hospitals because they were segregated. Right. They didn't have birth certificates. Right. People were dragged behind cars. Lynchings are real. They happened. They continue happening. The modern day lynching is still happening with our police system. the, The violence has not stopped. But in the 20s, black people were dragged behind trucks and cars in the South for no reason. I remember that. For no reason. I remember that. I remember that. It, it, and oh, and that we're not, God. and that was a hundred years ago that we were murdering people in the streets and that it's no. still happening right now with cowards hiding behind badges. That is the same systematic oppression and that we're not you know acknowledging what, you, it. You know what? When you were talking about the, the dragging of the man dragging, I thought you were talking about you were talking about the incident that happened like in the early 2000s, the late 90s, right? Because I remember I was in high school, and it happened in Texas where <sighs> these white supremacists dragged this black man for about five miles. Oh my god! I never forget that story. It happened right, like a couple of years after Matthew Shepard because <sighs> I thought that was heinous as fuck. But oh no, the white supremacist crackers got to top each other with the bloodiest and grimiest how to kill people that we hate the most by that man being dragged. So that was just 20 years ago to me, but it's still commonplace. It's so... It never went away. That's the thing. We don't even have to say 100 years ago. Yeah, it's... Exactly. I just reread... I'll I'll close out with this. I just reread... Jean-Paul Sartre wrote a play in the 40s called The Respectful Prostitute. And it's an amazing play about um, a prostitute on a train. And she gets accosted by these white men who say some terrible things. And this um, African-American gentleman kind of helps her. But then his friend is shot. And then they, the white guys who did it blame it on a black guy and then they demonize him and they get her to lie and they get this judge in there and it's all this stuff about how she's valueless because she's a prostitute and how they work that against her and how he's valueless because of the color of his skin but because it's written by a French philosopher it's a really interesting treatise on the racism in America in the 40s and it stands up today and it's called The Respectful Prostitute it is a killer yeah. play and it is so hard to read because you watch the big judge come in at the end and you watch him just twist this 
prostitute this woman and her jo- and just basically devalue her to the point where she has value but then she's devalued it's crazy and then this guy it's it's a really really I, I recommend anybody to read Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, The Respectful Prostitute and it is and it, but it, that it was written well, in the 40s like and it's happening right now yeah yeah Yes. Uh, closing words from you, Sheriff of Truth. Um, if you have a chance to early vote in your state, do it. Do it. Or I'll kill you. Yeah. No, actually, or, or they will kill you. Literally. Yeah. And as Donald Trump says, you. vote early, vote often. <laughs> Don't vote twice. You can't. It's illegal. Don't listen to him. Stand back and stand down. Yeah, please. <laughs> stand back, stand down. Stop oh, being a white I- supremacist. <laughs> Oh, and enjoy these debates tonight. Oh, yeah. Right? Ooh. Yes. Pence asked his mother if he can stand next to a black woman tonight. Mm, mm, I can't wait. This is actually pretty exciting because they they can have a really great discussion and an, an excellent debate on stage. And I think that Kamala can, as, as a, as a former prosecutor, uh, she, can tear it down and i'm excited to see her rocket i'm excited to see her i'm excited to see her kill it because i really think that she can i think she has the the stage presence i think she has the linguistic ability i think she has the the law background yeah i think she's gonna drag his ass yeah i really do and hopefully she brings up something about dinosaurs (laughs) and jesus (laughs) Well, and homosexuals. Yes, we. Hey, I'm a hundred. Yeah, talk about abortion and homosexuals, please. Those are some of the things that still are meaningful to me. That all people are people. I mean, yay! Well, thank you again. You're wonderful. Until next week. week, I'll talk to you soon. That's been Latoya, the sheriff of truth. She was with us here on Mutiny Radio. Hey, this has been Some Call Me Tim. I'm going to play a little commercial, and then we're going to be back with some uh, an old Winia, me and Winia talking. Oh, love me some Winia. Hey, check out her skills gathering at buckskinrevolution.com. Get my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Tebow of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do, to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. 
It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buxian Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. When you hear the trippy music, you know what time it is. I'm so excited. Today is a little bit different. I am pre-recording some Call Me Tim because I have the most exciting interview that I've ever had on Some Call Me Tim. Well, today on Some Call Me Tim, I actually have Wania, the bow of season six alone. How did that happen? Oh, things happen on Netflix, and then get into them, and then, oh, you get on Facebook, and they're real people. She's a real person. She answered her fan mail, because I am a super fan. It's hard for me to express I don't want to tell her this stuff because it's weird, but she'll hear it on the thing later. But I'm, I used to be a reality TV junkie. Before I started living like an authentic life that I wanted to live and spent my time the way I thought it should be spent to like make the universe and my universe and the whole situation better, I spent a lot of time watching screens and being really into reality TV. And in my late 20s early 30s I would say that it was my main goal in my life to be on a reality TV show now I look back at that and I think like oh maybe my reasons were a little more vapid or but this alone show is no joke if you haven't checked it out on Netflix yet season six wow like it's people surviving sur thriving as Wania will put it on her, uh, alone. <laughs> they have cameras, their own cameras. Nobody's filming them. They're filming themselves and they're surviving and they're making their own water or food, finding it, building a shelter. It's like crazy, but great. Not pejoratively crazy. Like, wow, like superhero stuff. Living the way I would pretend as a child, like in my backyard, like, oh, look what I'm doing. But they're really out there. 73 days. She was out there for 73 days. And I'm watching the show and I'm crying and I'm crying. And there's all these amazing moments. She's dancing with the sun and she's squirrel, thanking the squirrels and being so grateful to everything she ate. And just like, and I'm crying. I mean, oh. It was just, it was amazing. And she's a woman. There were so many women out there. And I was so impressed because I just, when it started, I was like, oh, three women. And she's a feminist superhero. And I can't wait to ask her so many questions. She's calling like right now. It's going to happen. 
it's gonna happen like right now. Okay, I'm like, I did this, I started it a little bit early before she called because I was trying to like center myself so I wouldn't fangirl out on like the explanation of Alone before I started for those of you who haven't seen the show. It's not like regular reality TV, let's put it that way. I mean, it is in that they edited things heavily and I wanna ask Winnie quite a bit about what they left out and I watched, she has a YouTube channel on Buckskin Revolution where you can watch the Alone series and then listen to her as she unpacks each episode um, and says like the things that she could say and couldn't say because I guess they had a, a DNR or something about the show. I guess reality TV shows do that. You can't release anything before it happens on the TV. but. Uh, she has her Buckskin Revolution channel that you should check out on YouTube, where she also teaches life skills. There she is! There she is! Okay. 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 Here she is. Okay. Oh, see, I already made a mistake. Hi, Winia. <gasps> <laughs> Hi, Sam. How are you? I, I already fangirled out a little bit to the audience before you called to, like, calm myself <laughs> down and sort of, like, uh -huh. explain what alone is for maybe some of the people that hadn't seen it. But you're more than alone. Uh -huh. That's the thing, too. I didn't want to just, like, talk about alone today. Hi! Okay, okay, I'm calm. I'm together. <laughs> you're so cool. I'm just, like, over the oh, moon to, like, you. oh. I mean, you didn't even have snare wire, and you caught rabbits? Okay. I know. I actually got a snarky comment on my YouTube channel today about how bad I did and how they couldn't believe I couldn't catch fish in a lake that was teeming with fish and how bad my trapping was. And it's so funny what people think they know about a thing. Like, they didn't really advertise that I don't have snare wires. Most people have no idea that that was one of the challenges that was going on. You had no fish. Well, that's, and they mentioned that at some point, that each place that they dropped people, each campsite is the wrong word, each place in the wilderness where you had the opportunity to live, they were all different. And so some had fish right. and some had, you had uh, squirrels and rabbits and berries. Not everybody had berries, right? Like I had less berries than most people, I think, actually, because I didn't have much in the way of blueberries. You know, every site was different for sure. Yeah, but it wasn't really true that like they all had equal mm. resources. They tried to give them the best you know, they tried to make it the best swath and distribute the sites as well as possible. Some sites had way more resources than others, for sure. Yeah, well, which would you have... That's the luck of the job. That's the real world. Right? <laughs> it's we... not Disneyland, it's the wild. Which, which, uh, which, which site would you have wanted to be on, watching it after? Would you have said, oh, if I would have been there? Did you have even that thought of like, oh, if I would have been in that no. spot? I mean, the thought that had I been in a spot with more resources, mm -hmm. I could have done better and stayed longer. But I was in love with the place that I was. And when you're out there, you don't you have absolutely no idea what right. what other sites are like and what other people have access to. And there's really no point thinking about what you don't have because that doesn't get you anywhere. Right. Well, but isn't that what you can do with what you've got? That's a mindset I think that we have in our real lives here all the time is that when we focus on the things that we that someone else has or that we don't have and then it creates like suffering and misery that doesn't even need to be there. It's like what we can exactly. appreciate our own stuff. Okay, so first I have questions not about alone. Where does your <laughs> name, where does Wania come from? What is the derivation of your super cool name? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the story of it is um, one that is interesting and not necessarily super cool. Um, so when I was a teenager, um, when I was uh, 19, I went and I did a summer course. There was a backpacking field study. So it was eight weeks backpacking in the mounds of Idaho, which was amazing. And one of the traditions of the course was that everyone would take a, a trail name during that time, um, just to kind of set it aside as a thing separate from your normal life. And so I did that, and I was really interested in ancestral skills and starting to learn more of these life ways that are the things that I'm into now. And I found a book of Lakota stories, and... Um, Wonia was a name. I wanted something that sounded beautiful and had a beautiful meaning and was something that I really identified with. And, um, and so Wonia is a really powerful word that means um, like the life spirit when it's not incorporated in a body. It means the breath of life. And so I took that on as my trail name. And after, after going by it for so long, and it was a very, very transformative summer, um, I decided to keep that as my name. And so the, the not pretty part of it is that that's totally cultural appropriation. Oh. And I, you know, I was a young woman and I didn't really have that lens and I didn't understand, you know, I had no concept of that or why it might not be a great choice. So, um, so that's where Wonia comes from, is from a young woman who just named herself uh, a word from another tradition that wasn't her own and I do think it's beautiful and I do really identify with it and it's not a choice that I would make today but I've gone by that longer than I went by the name I was given and also I feel like it's a way to introduce it's that keeping that name um, brings up the conversation yeah. and allows me to talk about the concept of cultural appropriation and just like changing it back would be like uh, letting myself off the hook and pretending that I didn't make an inappropriate choice when I didn't know any better. And it gives me this kind of like this way of addressing such issues from a place of humility as someone who gets it because they've done that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's a great question. And it's not, you know, um, yeah, it's not always an easy subject for me to talk about because of that reason. Do you, do you feel like you've earned the name now that you have embodied all these ancestral skills? Almost like you could call yourself a, a bunny or a rabbit name at this point because you ate so many like you you even said on the there was one of the things they actually showed that you're like I'm part rabbit now <laughs> like I'm or that all of yeah, your cells absolutely. were so do you feel like through the time that you've spent being like because you have integrity with these skills that you're that you've embodied and then you're, you're living and you're teaching it, does that remove or do you still feel yeah, some of that no, I don't, I don't think that there's any earning a thing that is, you know, something that I took without permission, uh, you know? So, I mean, wow. I think that it's not an inappropriate name if you look at it in that way, but if you look at it through the lens of cultural appropriation, yeah. I don't think that, you know, that there is anything that just changes. I mean, sure, I think that someone who didn't have a relationship with the skills and wasn't aware of these concepts, maybe it would be a less appropriate thing for, or it would be more harmful right. for someone else. But I don't feel like that makes it just okay, you know, That's... not unless I had, you know, and, and, I, and I've spoken to Lakota people about this too, so it's not I'm completely without relationship to Lakota people, um, but, you know, 
yeah, no, I can see the people who are all going to have really different opinions about it. So, <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's not it's for an, me to say whether or not I earned it, I guess, is the, is the bottom line. It's an appropriate, it's an important conversation. Like, cause since we're in this crazy time of, uh, I mean, what's happening with our world right now? There's so, but to even just to recognize a situation, it's like for me in white guilt, like I have to constantly come up against it and say, yeah, I'm, oh, did I lose you? I lost you. Back. I know. Sorry about that. No, it's all good. Cell phone here, so. And you're out. In, you're up there in the mountains in Grass Valley. Okay, so here's my next question: How are you friends with a giant okay. cat? <laughs> the the profile shot. Yeah, the, the picture the, the of the. You you're looking that? at the. You're looking mm-hmm. into the eyes of this enormous cat. I, I'm a cat person. I'm a crazy cat lady. Like I love cats. And I saw that picture. I'm like, how are you friends with a giant cat? And that's actually a pretty small bobcat as they go, um, <laughs> large, large compared to house cats. But that was a cat that had been hit on the road. Oh. Um, so that cat was no longer alive. Oh, really? I thought you were looking deeply yeah. into the eyes of a cat. See, look at me. I completely I misinterpreted the picture. You were. I mean, I was doing that. Yeah. yeah. That, that's all still true. So and, and so for me, when I was watching you, I was so affected and I kept like kind of putting myself where you were. It was so, oh, it was so incredible because you're filming yourself and it's like so intimate because it was almost like I was with you and that's got to be weird right. for you. And I'm wondering how like that affected you with the camera and the intimacy. But also when I was watching you, I kept thinking I could never... And you, there were times where you'd pick up an animal and look at it and be like, thank you, thank you, thank you for feeding me. And and you had to be like intimate with that animal and pull off its skin and do all that stuff. Is that, I mean, how do you do that? I, I, I Maybe I'm just so removed from <laughs> survival and life that like I just couldn't imagine. I mean, I was watching you do it and that was hard for me, like, uh, when I saw Jordan with the Wolverine and I saw his little face and his teeth and I was like, I'm making myself watch this. But like, how did, was that interacting with you? With Were you just so grateful for the food that it wasn't, or that's just not freaky for you? It's just not freaky for me. That's been a part of my life for a really long time. You know, I've raised my own meat animals, um, you know, and I was vegetarian and vegan at one point. So I was like very anti-hunting and PETA and vegetarian in high school. Um, but once I started being introduced to ancestral skills and, you know, I went right from being vegan to processing and eating roadkill. Um, and I'm, you know, I have a science background and a deep connection with animals and it's never, it has never felt like a juxtaposition to me to love and feel connected to a wild creature and to, you know, skin it and break down its body for food and eat it. That is the most natural thing in the world to me. And to me, the barriers that our society puts up and the, the removal from our food source, that's what feels weird and wrong to me. Um, so, yeah, it certainly was not an issue for me out there and nor in my life in general. See, I, um, I, I cook. One of the things I do for a living is I, I, I cook. I have no problem if an animal has no head. Like, I can, I've processed so <laughs> many birds. I've deboned so many birds in my time. Like, it's, but if they have a head, I can't do it. And, and I think maybe it must be something to do with the way I was raised and I was so far removed. Even when I am working with a food source, I'm still removed from it, even when it's whole. So right. 
Um, talk a little bit about Buckskin Revolution and what you're doing to try to create that connection again with people and the way we should. I don't want to say should be living our lives. That's weird. But the way we did for thousands of years. And then it's just this little tiny little bit here at the end where we're so removed from it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you've kind of you've hit the nail on the head there that my work with Buckskin Revolution is to kind of um, invite people back into that place of connection, not just with the world around them, um, but with our own selves, with our human communities and with with our ancestry as humans and what it is that we evolved to do. And absolutely, the bodies that we live in evolved over the course of hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years. To, to allow us to engage deeply with the world around us. And it's only been a few hundred years that that's completely shifted to where we no longer need a lot of these senses that we evolved with. And I think that you know, the malaise that we see in our modern society and so many people who are unsatisfied and you know, dealing with oppression and feel like there's something missing from their lives, I believe that that is because we are living lives that are so different from what we evolved to do. And that does, you know, that does leave a feeling of something missing you know we have all of these amazing sensory perceptions that are about engaging with the world around us and instead we engage with screens you know 12 inches from our faces and we fill our senses with noises and you know like right now there's a helicopter overhead and i can hear the highway and you know my ears evolved to the frequency of bird song and knowing what's going on in the forest around me through paying attention to what the birds are doing and, um, yeah, I think that the degree to which we engage those skills, those senses, those parts of our body, you know, just our hands in, in fashioning things that we need for our lives, there's something deeply fulfilling about that, you know, on a level that we don't even really know how to verbalize. Um, Crafting. Well, that, it's that's making... That's what I'm trying to share. When, when humans, I mean, we as humans, all we really have is the ability to create things, right? Either thought or stuff and I feel like and watching you craft it's uh, that was the thing okay so at the beginning of the show they don't show you for like two weeks and I get it it's a reality right. tv show and they had to show the people that were going to break their leg and get kicked off and they had to show their stories a little <laughs> bit because they were leaving and you were going to be there forever but all those things that we didn't get to see like you were just sitting on the ground weaving baskets for two weeks or like what was because you were, I mean, obviously you were doing things. You were. There's a lot going on in those first couple of weeks. Yeah. So it was all like um, building your amazing shelter, which was like the best shelter. I was like, I want to live there. That's. <laughs> it was. It looked warm and snug and like a real little house, but you were like mm -hmm. literally crafting all the time. Yeah, I mean, when you weren't looking uh, for well, there's food. There's all or... kinds of things. I mean, it's it's hard to sum up. It was a huge time. You know, I mean, it starts off with the most important thing that you can be doing is, yeah, getting your shelter set and then starting to, to key into your environment and where the food sources are and strategizing how you're going to avail yourself of those. So th that was what, you know, my first couple days were scouting my site and deciding where to set up my shelter and um, being sure that I was in the best possible location and then starting to build. And, you know, we, we had snow on day three. Oh. So it was full on from the very beginning. And so I was constantly in this place of trying to balance food, resources, and shelter. And, you know, when I woke up covered in snow, obviously that's going to nudge me to prioritize shelter um, for that day. Um, but always trying to hold both of those things. And um, 
certainly the first few days were more focused on shelter for me because I knew that my body still had a lot of calories in it because yeah. we had been gorging up until we left. So I knew that my system had as much energy, you know, at the very beginning as I was likely to have. Um, and so I wanted to really focus on shelter at first while I knew I still had those, those you know, glycogen stores in my liver. Um, wow. <laughs> and, um, but by day four, I started hitting fishing really hard. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, um, doing, you know, doing a lot more focus on fishing until it became increasingly clear that I was not in a location that had fish. Right. Um, you just had very, very shallow water. That must have been so frustrating that you crafted all those lures and you were out there and just sitting for hours. I mean, were you listening to the birds? Like, <laughs> did you, you just, I mean, I was doing it. No, <laughs> I was constantly, constantly active oh. doing everything I possibly could to improve my situation every daylight hour and well into the night by headlamp. There was no downtime and listening to birds. Okay. Um, you know, <laughs> but like the... that's something that I was doing as I was doing everything oh, else, gotcha. you know, like part of my awareness would be there, but, um, but no, constantly, you How... know, bringing in firewood, working on the shelter, you know, strategizing new ways to, to try to make fishing happening, finding, you know, scouting the landscape and seeing whether there were any other better places for fishing, going, you know, making a moose call and going into the woods and calling moose. I mean, I was, I was splitting my strategy between fishing and bringing in moose, but, that, and, you know, you were asking like, what were the resources that I had? My site was very resource scarce compared to a lot of the other sites. I didn't have big game you know I was hoping for problems with bears because I had a bow 45 pound <laughs> bow and broadheads and I would have been thrilled to have bears sniffing around my camp and that happened with a lot of other people but that's not you know I was on a narrow rocky peninsula with no fish and no big game and really actually very scarce small game because it was you know mostly bare rocks right um, I, so in terms of, you asked earlier in terms of resources somewhere like Jordan's area where he had fish and big game and a ton of small game. I mean, he was in an area that had been burned a couple years before, which means there's a ton of vegetation regrowth. It's one of the most abundant sites that, you know, that you can possibly have. Um, and mine, in contrast, was a bare rocky peninsula surrounded by shallow water. Right, so, with where you yeah. got to – now, here's another question I have. Uh, what's your dance background? And I was so bummed that they only showed you once <laughs> with your – because I, I watched all of your YouTubes after, and you're like, I was dancing every night I had a dance party until the last week. and um, Not every night. Once a week. Once, once a, week. a week. Oh, okay. But you sang the sun yeah. up every morning. I, I sang the sun down There's, every evening. You sang the sun down. Um, yeah. But, but these were rituals. I sang the sun up a lot of mornings, but not every morning, because okay. mornings were a lot more challenging, frankly. <laughs> what, was it just, it was so <laughs> cold? Maybe all the more reason. Was it getting out of bed was just yeah, so difficult? Yeah, it was cold. Yeah, it yeah, was cold. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, as time went on, things shifted, you know, like starving for weeks on end um, and really, really cold temperatures and not sleeping well, because generally when one is um, really undernourished and in ketosis, it tends to affect your sleep patterns. Um, so, so yeah, but getting out of a sleeping bag into minus 20 degrees oh. and you haven't had anything to eat for weeks is challenging. Yeah. So I'm, and my voice is a little more croaky in the morning. So, wow. <laughs> so my right, singing practice singing. is more sure. consistent in the evenings than in the morning. And, but these were rituals. So this is kind of goes back to the ancestral thing. So you were creating rituals for yourself out there. And is that what 
like helped keep you grounded in and like what what would what did you find Cause I also you also made ancestral plates like you said that when you were cooking your food you were like how did I don't want to like say like how did that witchy stuff help you but I, I mean I'm into it too <laughs> so but you were you were performing all of these rituals how did that like bolster your attitude and your how you were spending out there because I didn't see anybody else like doing rituals like that yeah, I mean, you know, I think that um, I think that ritual has a certain connotation, which isn't necessarily how I would describe it. I mean, I think that has a lot of connotations, some that fit and some that don't. But I would say, yeah, I mean, definitely I wove into my life a lot of practices that reminded me to be coming from a place of gratitude and connection. Um, I just, you know, like I, I've posted videos about making blood pudding and have some people say that I'm like, doing satanic practices or something. So I'm leery around the term ritual sure, because sure, people sure, can sure. take that and yeah. run with it, all kinds of weird places. Um, right, well, so you're anyway, like a celebrity yeah, now, I, so you, you, have to, you do have to watch <laughs> what, no, seriously, because words of people, uh, I'm sure. That's not the word I would use necessarily, uh, but millions. I have a higher profile than I used to. Millions of people have seen you, like, sure. and all of yeah, the skills that, I mean, do you feel like, this was the pin this is what you've been working your whole life for like all of your skills came to fruition for this time that you were able to survive I mean, not just for that time for for similar things for all time it definitely felt like a fruition of a lot of things but it, i don't like to think of it as like an end goal because then what what do you have after an end goal <laughs> right sure so yes it was definitely a culmination of um of things that have been a huge part of my life for decades um yeah but I hope that it's not the last time oh, no. that I get to use all of those skills. But. <laughs> I'm sure you're using the skills right now. Um, so back, I didn't, a dance background. So were you a dancer as a child? Because you. No, not at all. Um, I mean, I am someone who, lo I mean, I guess, yes, I got dragged to ballet at four and, you know, did somersaults and tutus and such. But that's the, that's the sum total of my dance background. I mean, I'm, I'm someone who loves dancing and have taken, you know, I have taken different dance classes, but um, mostly just reform, um, you know, like five rhythms and ecstatic dance and that kind of thing. Um, I wouldn't say it's a background, but just something that's a part of who I am and something that I really love. Rad. I just, uh, yay. Um, okay, so I have all of these questions about cameras. Did they train? Okay, so mm -hmm. it was a crazy show to watch because it was beautifully shot. And I know that some of it was be real and like they are a show and they, mm -hmm. they're doing what they do. But the majority of the and stuff... And they go over sites with drones occasionally and that kind of thing. So they do, you know, bolster what we do. But you are your own camera person, which I don't... It took me yeah. a while to realize that. I'm like, so do the camera crew... I kept thinking, like, the camera crew gets lunch, like, while they're starving. That's inhumane. That's terrible. But then I realized, like, wait, 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 no. No, there, no there's no camera There's crew. no one there. No, right, no. It, it's actually literally... I mean, the show is called Alone for a reason. Yeah. It's quite literal. Yep. I just didn't believe it at the beginning, and then I'm like, okay, this is real. So did they t teach you how to use camera, or did they tell you, like, what shots they wanted yeah. you to do or where? Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a big part of the prep before going out is, um, is yeah, the, the camera training. And that happens also in their selection process. Um, you know, when they, they, they had, for my season, I think they had 20,000 applicants Whoa. to be on alone. Um, 
and then and, and I didn't apply they they called me um and so you know I kind of got a got a leg up in that whole process but um but then they narrow those 20,000 down to 20 in my case 22 people and then they bring us out to New York for a week to do a bunch of different assessments um skills assessments you know physical tests psychological tests and in that they do a bunch of camera training and then they're also um I think they're also really paying attention to see who cares to dive into the camera training and who's actually really um, prioritizing learning the camera skills because you can have all of the survival skills in the world, but if you're not that interested in shooting well, then they don't have a show, right. you know? So very important that, um, that they select people who care to do a good job with the camera training, which, you know, I did. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, it was beautiful. It was beautifully yeah. shot. And even, like, when you're – I guess kept thinking, like, how much time are you spending with the camera? Because the sun is going down, and you're chipping through this ice, and it's 18 inches thick, and you didn't have the axe. You had your cool thing that you chopped the trees down with, and, and you're just going and going and going. And I was like, how much time did the camera take to set up? And then you have to take it home and well, all these and other, that, like – yeah, and that's – that's a huge component, and honestly, you know, I would do it differently now than I did then. I was very, very invested. I mean, really the reason why, and there were a lot of different reasons why I decided to do alone, but a big part of it for me wasn't, you know, it wasn't about the competition. It would have been great to win on some level, sure, and there were some levels where I didn't actually think that winning would be the thing. Um, but m one of my main goals was to demonstrate a different way of approaching survival than what one usually sees on these shows. And, you know, it usually tends to be about, like, competition and coming from this very antagonistic place with the natural world. And, like, mm -hmm. you know, it's me versus nature. And, you know, even one of the shows is called Man versus Wild, right. you know, and that is the polar opposite to my perspective and how I wanted to be out there. So for me, it was the opportunity to share my perspective with the world stage and knowing that the, you know, the better I did, the more I, the more I proved that going about things from a place of connection and reciprocity rather than domination and, you know, competition is a viable strategy, is a viable strategy for survival. So, um, because that was such a goal of mine, I really took a lot of time with the filming, and that was a huge part. I would say half of my daylight hours and, you know, calories and time and energy went to getting really good shots. Wow. And it, would, it would affect what I did. You know, I would choose to do things like I would process my animals during the day, during the daylight hours, so I could get really good footage of it. When for me, practically speaking, it would be way better for me to leave that animal in my shelter and do it at night because there are tons of things I can be doing out on the land when the sun is out that I can't do in the dark. And the sun was only out for four hours a day by the time I left. So every daylight hour was so huge. And yet I sacrificed a lot of them to get the good camera angles and to set up the good shots and do the good filming. And then it was so disappointing to watch the show and see that like way less than 1% of the things I filmed made it onto the show. And I could have done, so I, I could probably have had twice as much food if I had had twice as much time. Oh. Well, honestly, I'm not sure that that's true because my spot was so resource scarce, but, you know, I could have done much better in terms of the survival aspect had I not put so much energy towards filming really well. Um, so, you know, I don't want to say that anything is a regret because it was the most amazing experience I've ever had. And had I shifted some things then maybe other things that I can't know now would have shifted and that would have been a bummer. But I would do it differently in terms of 
so much time and attention towards filming well if I was to do it again. How many hours a day did they ask you to film? Because we were we were asked to film absolutely everything we did. Wow. So what did they give you batteries every time? We legally require that. So we had we had a way to recharge our own batteries. We had a big like essentially like a big car battery uh-huh. um, that we could recharge some of the batteries ourselves. But then they would also give us a ton of batteries when they came to do medical checks. Med checks and then figured. also early on when they weren't doing medical checks and when the lake wasn't frozen, they would um, they would do what they called blind drops, or we would have a dry bag and we would leave our dead batteries and our SD cards with our footage on the shore in a dry bag, and they would come by with the boat and grab that bag and replace it with a bunch of fresh batteries. So and, we, but they wouldn't you know, talk they to you. never wanted us to be without batteries. Of course. No, no, like... we, we didn't even see the boat. We weren't supposed to be anywhere near shore when they did that. They would let us know, okay, we're doing a blind drop today. Don't be anywhere on shore, you know, between this hour and this hour. So did you look forward to med checks just because they were people, like when they started happening? Or was it like, oh, med checks, I don't want to, I don't want to know, or no, I didn't. I didn't really look forward to them. I felt like it really interrupted my routine. I mean, uh, one thing is that a day with a med check was kind of a lost day in terms right. of food no gathering daylight. because they would give me a window when they, when they were coming, but they didn't know when exactly. So I couldn't be that far from my shelter, and my trap lines were a good ways away from my shelter. Yeah. Um, and so it meant it meant losing a ton of time. It meant like stripping. I mean, they weighed me. I had to strip down in the freezing cold, yeah. you know. Um, and it just when you're so adjusted to being out there on your own, like I wasn't lonely. I was loving it. I like really had this beautiful um, connection and solitude and, um, you know, having a helicopter land and a whole bunch of people come out and, you know, poke and prod you and ask you a bunch of questions. It's very disruptive and it was a whole different energy. And it took me a while after they left to kind of get back to my serenity after everything being so stirred up and this whole different type of interaction. Um, so I know I did not look forward to the medical. T- I mean, I really had a deep connection with a lot of the people um, who were coming with the film crew. Like I really appreciated them as people. And so it's not like I didn't enjoy the interaction when they were there, right. but it was still so disruptive that I would rather have not had it. And towards the end, you know, I was having medical checks a lot more often because I was dangerously underweight and I knew they were very, very concerned about me. So I had the fear of being pulled up you know, all the time. Um, right. I got my first warning that I was on medical alert on day 40. Whoa. And so 33 more days, I was out there wondering when I was going to get pulled and having medical checks way too often that were very disruptive and actually really um, affected my ability to bring in food a lot. So it's like, yeah. you're underweight, so we're going to check you more often. And it's like, well, the more that you check me, the more underweight I'm going to get because that's the whole day that I lose a lot of my trapping capacity. Uh, how far, you said you're, traps were a ways away like a mile i'm just trying to think calorie wise no no. No, not Uh, that far i mean it changed all the time you know i had different trap lines set up i was constantly i mean every day i was checking and resetting because i had fishing line and not snare wire fishing line rabbits can chew through in you know half a second so i was constantly constantly having to take down and reset up other snares and you know the rabbits would be onto me if I had set up a bunch that they had just nipped off in one area they would stop using that area so I had to constantly be exploiting other areas and you know so there was no set trap line that was there all the time it was 
you know, constant strategizing and shifting up what I was doing. How so many? Sometimes, I don't know, probably as far as half a mile, okay. but not, not a whole mile away. And, you know, I, my territory, you don't know how big your zone is. You know, you're not, they have boundaries you're not allowed to cross, but it's not like they're marked, you know, this is way out in the wilderness. So the way that I would know is if I got a little blip on my GPS device. What? Um, and then let's talk about so, the beavers. Oh, oh, I saw the thing when you talked about the beavers. I want to talk about the beavers. So when everything finally freezes <laughs> up and you're like, all right, I'm going to go get those beavers. And you get over to the beavers, can't get to dang beavers. And then the frozen river and the beeping and the leaving. That was crazy. So yeah, did you, that was, was that the first time <laughs> that you felt, was that the first time you felt real fear? Or were there other moments where you were like, I could die right now. Was that the only moment that was at like the end of your journey and you were like, whoa. Yeah, that was the only moment. Really? Sure. You yeah. never felt any, like mm-hmm. that was a kind of fear that like I can imagine it's like inside, you're like the pit of your being is like, oh, whoa, we need to be well, and the careful thing with get that out of frozen here. River was, yeah, I mean that was like, I never felt any threats from the outside. Like being on the river, that was my own fault. You know, that was that was my own poor choices right in that moment. So I didn't really have anything. So I felt fear, but I also felt like shame at like, wow, that was a really stupid choice. You just really put yourself in jeopardy. Um, but that was the only moment. No, I really, you know, I, I understand that it maybe should have been scary and um, that it would be for a lot of people. But I felt so seen and held and wanted by that place, I just really didn't feel like there was anything out there that wished me harm. And even, you know, I mean, I was out there on top of that frozen river because I'd been following wolf tracks um, across the ice. And, you know, wolves are big predators. But I, you know, I didn't feel like I was in any danger, which is not true. You know, like (laughs) something could have decided that I was an even, uh, you know, an easy meal. But even so... I mean, my deepest desire was to be a deep part of that landscape, and that is part of that is part of living wild and wild systems. And so, in that way, I mean, I'm sure that had I been attacked by a wolf in the moment, it would have been very scary. But you know, better was to go out that way as part of a beautiful interaction in a wild place than to get taken out in a car accident. Sure. You know. Did you have an so, arrow knocked? So I wasn't. Did you have an arrow knocked uh, when you were on walking? That, no, I didn't have an arrow knock. I'm trying to remember if I even had my bow with wow. me. I probably did because I brought my bow everywhere. But no, I definitely didn't have an arrow knock. Because you were I just walking and having my bow with me on that trip. You were just yeah, experiencing I mean, you know, the beauty of the place. It's not that common for wolves to take out people, and especially in an environment where they don't see people. It's not like we're on the menu. It would be an right. unusual animal that's like, what is this thing I've never seen before? I guess I'll figure it out by eating it. You know, <laughs> generally that's. There would be a curiosity. You know, the place where you see problem animals is places where humans have been encroaching into wild places a lot and affecting wild animals' ability to get game. You know, like bears attacking people. That happens usually in, like, campgrounds and such and places where they're used to associating humans with food. Um, So, yeah. I mean, which is not to say that, you know, that they mightn't be motivated that way. But it just wasn't. I didn't feel in my gut that I was in danger in those ways. Right. So just from yeah, the I had one water. moment when I was coming back. Yeah, just from standing on top of water, you know, of of ice that was way thinner than it 
should have been me be standing on top of a frozen river. I just didn't realize. And for the for the you know listening audience right now, what she's referring to is a night pretty far out. I think it was night seventy, maybe sixty nine or seventy. Um, I I had hiked out across the ice. I was way out of my bounds. I didn't realize that because the GPS signals and satellite signals are um, really bad out there. So the message telling me that I was way out of bounds didn't come until I was already far out. Um, but it was kind of dusk. I couldn't really, you know, the light was starting to go. And I was in this area on this lake, which is this huge lake, um, where the ice was starting to be uh, not flat, but kind of bubbled. And I was curious about it. And I thought that it must have been, you know, vegetation or something. And I didn't realize until I was already pretty far out that the reason why it wasn't flat there is because it's actually a, a river. And so it was like the bubbling flow of the river that had frozen. And it was not very thick ice. And um, because that's what happens, ice that's on top of flowing water doesn't doesn't freeze very quickly. So it's a really dangerous, really sketchy place to be. And I just you know, and that it was so enthralled it was by dusk. following these wolf tracks. The, the dusk, yeah, so you, they couldn't they have can't, come to help me. They couldn't have flown the helicopter. They, yeah, they wouldn't have Not been that able. they could have gotten there. I mean, if I had gone through ice on top of a fast-moving frozen river, there would have been nothing they could do. I would have <sighs> been stuffed under the ice anyway, and <sighs> the helicopter would have been a non-issue. <laughs> and I knew that. You know, that was, that was that's the, you know, I've done a lot of wilderness trips in my day and I've never in my life had a button I could push for someone to come save me so <laughs> I, that wasn't really part of my reality out there like I knew that everything I was doing was a calculated risk and that you know the chance of rescue was a pretty remote one so that that didn't figure into my thinking out there wow. um that's why you're so, a superhero yeah. you're fearless um, you're a fearless feminist <laughs> superhero I'm not fearless but that those aren't the things that I'm most afraid of I guess well, wow. okay, so let's switch gears. What are the top five most beautiful things you saw up there that you could, there's probably got to be more than five, mm. but that you For hadn't sure. seen in any of your wilderness journeys that you were just so majestic that that they didn't show on the show. I mean, they showed a lot of the Northern Lights and I kept being like, is that, that's crazy. Those are, wow. Um, they are crazy. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that area, Yellowknife, um, in the Northwest Territories, is um, a worldwide destination for Northern Lights tourism. I mean, the streets are awash with tourists um, who come there to watch the Northern Lights. So, yeah, all that footage was very real. Uh, so, yeah, the Northern Lights definitely, I, I'd seen Northern Lights before. Um, I'd lived in Northern Ontario for a brief time um, and seen some pretty spectacular Northern Lights there. But, yeah, that was those were really, really amazing. Um, the night that I was out on the ice, the night that they showed the footage of where I was trying to get through the ice and realizing that it, in the course of the couple days that I hadn't been out on the ice because there'd been a really intense storm, a really intense storm that dropped the temperature about 20 degrees with just whipping winds. And that storm, the ice went from about four inches thick to about you know 18 to 24 inches thick. Um, so I had been able to get through the ice with the same technique I was using before that, and then all of a sudden there was no way. But that ice, that 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 night, that sunset was the most epically beautiful, awe-inspiring evening of my entire life. And it was really frustrating to me that what they showed instead was me failing to get through the ice. And they inserted bleeps. I'm fairly certain I wasn't actually cussing. Um, I don't know for sure. Maybe I was, but they, but they made it look like a hardship, and it was one of the most amazing nights in my life. Such that, like, I just fully surrendered after that, and was like, if they pick me up tomorrow, 
I don't care because I got to have this night out on the ice. It was this experience where I was out there and the ice was completely scoured clean, just a mirror surface from this really intense storm we had had for days and days with heavy winds and, you know, like scouring the ice with snow. Um, And the sun was going down. And because the storm was just clearing, there were a lot of clouds. So the color was really intense. And the sky was just this amazing hot pink, orange, you know, beautiful colors. And then I'm standing on this ice that is so smooth that it's reflecting the sunset back at me. So it's like I'm standing in the middle of the sunset. You know, I'm completely surrounded by sunset colors everywhere. And then the night was just so gorgeous. Once I figured out that I couldn't get through that ice, I just decided to go further out onto the lake and just revel in it. And I got further out into the ice in an area where the, the pressure of the ice freezing so fast had cracked the surface of the lake. So it's all of these different pieces of ice that had all been kind of pushed up by the pressure of the cracking. And so they were all of these little pieces that were all sitting at a different angle to the sky. So each one was catching a different color. Like Superman. And, and reflecting that back at me. It was, yeah, yeah, only sunset. Only like sunset. All of Superman ice cave, sunset time. so epically unbelievable. And then as I'm out there on the ice, the moon is rising, oh. and it's like exactly half of a moon and exactly vertical. So that's rising up over the island as this amazing. It was just the most amazing experience of my entire life. And, you know. Why I mean, didn't they just, show like, that? You must. with beauty. Do you get to keep the footage? Well, because they want to show the drama. No, no, you don't get it. You put the footage. Well, honestly, I didn't bring the cameras oh. out there. <gasps> I mean, I did take footage. No, I did take footage of the moon rising, but when I went out to where there was the puzzle pieces, I left the camera set up by that hole, and I just wandered out by myself, which I wasn't really supposed to do. But it was, like, too epic and amazing. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. Um, you know, they could have showed. But there was a lot of footage of it. There just wasn't the footage of the, like, me on the puzzle piece part of the ice um but because that's not you know they're trying to build the drama and this is the last couple days and so they're trying to pitch this like you know battle to the end between me and jordan and um you know so just the beauty and wonder um most of my most epic moments i took great footage of that they didn't show Um, they should give you that i also had a moment yeah yeah they don't they don't do that um it would jeopardize their show i think is their their perspective on it so yeah those were those were i mean i could go on there are a bunch of them but um more beautiful (laughs) moments no no please what what are your other epic like things that were i mean because that's there are so many you can just pick a random one Um, the, the whole place yeah okay so so one moment that was really really profound early on um I mean, the whole thing was that, like, early on when we first launched, it was, you know, we had just been having our first intense frost, um, so everything was changing. The leaves were all changing, so this super, super stark landscape, you know, a huge lake that's like a steel gray most of the time and mostly bare rock, you know, this really amazing granite and huge towering cliffs, you know, vertical cliffs, and the whole landscape is so enormous you can't even begin to wrap your mind around it so like this super stark landscape with these amazing just flame colors of fall you know and I had this moment after being out there for you know going on a couple weeks and not bringing in any food besides just a couple handfuls of berries and recognizing that rather than feeling weaker and weaker I'm feeling better and better and there was just this moment where I realized that I was shifting on a physiological level 
to where I was learning to be fed by beauty instead of by food. And just that, like, that all hitting me in one moment, standing on this rocky precipice, looking out over this landscape, looking out over this lake, and recognizing that even though I'm starving and I don't know how long I can keep going on starving, like, there's no place in the world I would rather be or anything I would rather be doing in that moment. And just that epic beauty being so profound that it just brought tears to my eyes. You know, I just, like, there's no way to hold all of the emotions in my body and it just came through in the form of tears um and recognizing that like i could i could live on beauty now and i could do that for a really long time and had every intention of doing so so that was a really profound moment um i had a moment where i was at my cabin working on it and heard and heard a big kerfuffle of birds you know like i, I was really keyed into birds out there um, and I knew their patterns, and so I could tell that there was something unusual happening. And um, and going out to where I heard this and seeing this kind of a classic bird language moment, which was all of these birds in a shape that we call in bird language a parabola mm -hmm. around the top of this tree and looking in the top of that tree and seeing a huge um, predatory bird up there, a, a northern goshawk, I believe it was, which is specifically an avian predator. They're, they take out birds, and so there's something that birds really react to. So having that moment of, like, being keyed in enough to the landscape to think something's going on, something big is happening, and then going out there and finding the source of it and getting to see this amazing bird that I've never seen before in my life, that was a really profound one. Um, I had a really profound encounter with a fox um, that was really beautiful, um, yeah, I mean, seeing tracks, seeing wolverine tracks, you know, I'd never seen wolverine tracks, seeing lynx tracks, that was amazing, wolf tracks, I mean, all of these wildlife encounters that were creatures that I haven't had the opportunity to live in the territory of before, so, and even though the lynx tracks and the wolverine tracks were, like, dogging my trap line and potentially major competitors for my food, it was still so amazing to see that, that it, it felt worth it, you know? And so you never, um, it sounds like you just didn't feel alone at all. <laughs> like you were interacting How could I? I so was surrounded deeply. by life. Yeah, that it was yeah. it, it's like a completely different journey than other people took. Did the camera help you Apparently, feel Apparently, but I didn't realize until watching it. Yeah, you know, like, that, that... I had no idea how different my journey was to other journeys until I was watching the show and thinking, "Oh my god, I had the time of my life and these people are out here experiencing the exact same conditions in the exact same place and suffering so hard right that was a really profound realization for me just how I mean I knew what a big difference attitude made and and like we talked about you know like a lot of my preparations were strategizing routines for myself to help me stay in a place of connection and gratitude but it wasn't until watching other journeys you know other folks on my same season that I really got on a deeper level how profound a difference that was it must have, it must have killed you to watch Jordan sit there and complain and be like oh I'm starving with 200 pounds of moose <laughs> look at this I thought that was so funny but it did. I mean my interpretation of it wasn't that he was complaining as much as that the show was choosing to ah. take those moments out of his footage okay to make it seem like he and I were neck and neck right um so you know I have enough experience in knowing how many things I filmed and the things that they chose to show of my things in a way that misrepresented my journey, that I believed that that is what they were doing with, with him too. Sure. Not misrepresented, but just, you know, picking and choosing to get a certain impression. Right, to um, get the story that I they wanted. I knew that Jordan was nowhere near as poorly off. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, because they're, I mean, they are, it is a TV show and they are creating a story. Did you, did the camera become like a friend to you? Did you, when you were talking? Oh, absolutely. So it was like, because it it feels like you're talking to me when I'm watching, or talking to us Mm -hmm. or, you know, the audience. Yeah, no, I was very aware of that. And, you know, and I don't know how different the sense of isolation would have been if I didn't have that relationship for the camera. I mean, and again, so much of my intention was around showing something beautiful to the world that was a big part of my mission and so in that way I engaged with the audience perhaps more than other folks might have because I wanted to draw you in I wanted you know I know that a lot of these shows kind of what they do is like look at this person and all their survivor skills and they're they're such a badass and you know and like put you on a pedestal pedestal and that that's not what I wanted I wanted the viewers to identify with me and see themselves out there and doing the same thing and give them that experience and so I engaged with the camera in that way and and you know to me the camera was an audience that I was talking to and I think that that did a lot for my you know mental health out there because while I knew that obviously you weren't actually there and interacting with me and it wasn't in real time, I also knew that I was going to be sharing this. And so that kept me feeling like I was still part of human community as well as the wild community out there, even though it wasn't actually true at the time. Um, And so, yeah, so the camera, you know, it was a mixed blessing. Obviously it was where a lot of my time and energy went and a lot of that felt wasted because they showed so little of my footage, 